Well, good morning. Good morning. My name is Levi. I'm, uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Redeemer Church, and I have a cold, as you can maybe hear. <laughs> maybe you've got it too. I had it all week, and it just didn't go away, but I'm good enough to preach this morning, so thank God for that. Uh, this is not your typical, this is not my typical role on, on most Sundays to be preaching, um, if you didn't know that. Uh, usually I'm, I'm singing, uh, so actually I'm thankful I didn't have to sing today, uh, given my, my condition here. But uh, occasionally I preach uh, here at CRC, and uh, this is just one of those Sundays, so it happened to land, land here. And um, I think the last time I preached was in uh, late August, if I remember right, and we preached in the book of, of Haggai, and so there's only two chapters in Haggai, and I thought, well... I preached the first chapter in the summer. Let's go ahead and finish the book up today. So that's where we're going to end up this morning is in the book of Haggai. And uh, maybe before we, before we turn there, before we get rolling, let me just say a word of prayer. And, um, and we'll move along here this morning. Thank you, Jesus, uh, for your word. It says in uh, Psalm 119, God, that you're... Your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your word is eternal, God. Your faithfulness endures to all generations, and you establish the earth, and it is steadfast. And so, God, as we open up your word this morning, we, it's no less relevant to us today than it was the moment it was spoken the moment it was read for the first time. Your word is eternal. And so this morning, Lord, your word is relevant perfectly for us this morning. Thank you for that, God. Thank you for your word that we get to, um, to read and to hear from you, Lord. And I just pray that you would speak to us. Um, you would use uh, an imperfect servant, God, as I just try to preach through this text here this morning. Um, Use it, Lord, by the power of your Spirit to have its intended effect on us this morning. Thank you so much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. Well, I was 16 at one time, 16 years old, and... uh, just a fine young lad with some fantastic hair. And uh, I don't know what was going on there. I just decided to color it and whatever. And it was in in the time, all right? It was very cool for a little while. Uh, at 16 years old, I thought I knew what hard work was. I, was pl- I, had to go- I got my driver's license that year. And my plan that summer, after school was out in May, was to go work for my dad, who was a contractor. He built houses up in, up in Brainerd, Minnesota, here. And uh, he paid better than Subway, my previous job. And so I thought, yeah, I can do that. And I thought, I, I know what hard work is like. I've raked a few lawns. I made sandwiches last, last summer. Uh, lots of good ones for four twenty-five an hour, uh, plus a bonus. And uh, I thought going into that summer that, yeah, it'll be hard, but I know what it's all about. I can do this. And man, I was in for a rude awakening that summer because five days a week at eight o'clock, you had to be sweating, working hard. 
that whole summer. I was not used to that. I used to think, man, you start at 8 o'clock. No, no, no. You're sweating at 8 o'clock. You are working hard. By the time the truck rolls into the job site with my dad to the time you should be working is about 30 seconds. I thought you'd walk around the job, you hang out, you do some stuff, you talk about what you're going to do that morning. It was not that way. My 16-year-old self was in for a very rude awakening. You're always running to the truck looking for some obscure tool in the abyss of my dad's truck and uh, digging a hole here or doing this thing there. And it just... The days dragged on very, very long. There were some days I remember thinking, we must have worked through lunch. We had to have worked through lunch. I'm so hungry and I'm so tired. Uh, It it, it must be almost 2 o'clock. This is awesome. And in some moment, I would sneak away to the truck to take a look at the clock, and it was like 11.30. Day's not even half over. It was, it was terrible. And, and, and what made it worse was that it was my first year ever doing construction. And so one of the tough things about it was I never knew what we were doing. I never knew what was going on. I would just get out and somebody would say, dig a hole. Okay, I dig a hole. Now fill it with cement. Fill it with cement. Now do it six more times all over the house, all over the, this area over here. And I'd do all that and do it all week. And then we wouldn't touch it for like two months. And I'm like, why did I do all this work? What is going on? I never had the grand picture. I could never see what we were, what we were shooting for until we finally finished up the job and drove away. And it was, very, uh, it was a very hard summer. Um, I'm thankful for it now, but it was very discouraging. There were a lot of days I just wanted to quit. The work was hard. The vision was obscure to me. I was hungry and tired, and I'd rather go do something else. But I had to persevere. And that is the idea of sort of that discouragement, that hard work is sort of, um, it's sort of a picture of the people of Israel here in Haggai chapter 2. They're, they've been working hard. They're kind of discouraged by the progress. They're discouraged a little bit by the vision of the work. And, and that's kind of the context we enter this morning. So turn to Haggai 2 if you're not there already. Or turn on your Bible. If you need a Bible this morning, you can raise your hand and one of the ushers will grab one for you and, and, and get it to you. If your battery died on your phone or something like that, just want to make sure you get a copy of God's Word this morning. You can slip your hand up in the air. Haggai chapter 2. I think I mentioned that um, I preached Haggai 1 in, uh, in August. So... Um, just a quick little recap. Not that you need it. I mean, we all remember sermons from two months ago, right? But for the four or five that weren't here that day, um, what's happened here is uh, Israel has just recently come out of exile. They've been living in Babylon for 70 years because of their unfaithfulness, their persistent hard-heartedness to God's covenant. God said, okay, I'm going to send you into exile. They go in for 70 years, and at 70 years, God pulls them out graciously, opens a way for them to come out, and he says, now I want you to go, I want you to learn your lesson, Israel. I want you to go back to Jerusalem, and I want you to build my temple there, and I will make it succeed. And so they do. They get their, uh, their families together. They get everything together. They travel back to Jerusalem. They start building homes. They start their gardens. They start getting their livestock together. They start having babies. They just start living life. And what happens is years and years and years go by, and they completely ignore God's command to build this temple. It sits in the middle of Jerusalem. It's a big pile of rocks, and they are far too busy kind of establishing their own 
lives, and God comes and says, this is not right. This is, I give you time to work on your house, that's fine, but you can't ignore my command to rebuild my temple forever. And so God comes and, and um, reminds them of that. And the, significant, the significance of the temple is that God called Israel to be a light to the nations. He had a purpose for Israel. He had a purpose for Israel to come back and to rebuild this temple. This temple would stand in, uh, in the middle of Jerusalem and God's people could come together to this temple and they would learn about who God is. They would come together and worship and this temple would stand for the other nations to see, to be blessed by, by, by Israel, to see their God, to see their temple, to recognize the way Israel lives their lives, to recognize their laws and that they would look at that temple and they would look at Israel and they would, be, and they would, they would want to be a part of that. So this idea of a temple had this mission aspect to it. It had, it had discipleship all over it. Discipleship of Israel, but also a mission of bringing in the nations from a long ways away to be a part of Israel. Micah chapter 4 says this, Many nations, surrounding nations, will say, Come, let us go to the temple, that is the mountain of the Lord, that he may teach us his ways and we may walk in his paths. Now, if Israel fails to build this temple the way God's called them to, the nations have no, no real concrete reason or reason to think that, or any, any kind of thing to even draw them in, that Israel has some God that matters or that is important to them. There's just no sign of it anywhere. And so their failure to build the temple is a failure to be a light to the nations. It's a failure to for God uh, to fulfill God's purposes for this nation. So, like I said, God calls them on it. He calls their attention to it in Haggai chapter 1, and they repent. I mean, they receive God's word really well, and they're like, God is right. We, 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 need, to, uh, we need to repent, and we need to get to work on this. And, and God clarifies some things. He's like, man, you've, you've been suffering through a drought. You've been suffering to just have your daily meat needs met. Um, I'm the one doing that to you. God reminds them of that. He says, it's the, I'm just fulfilling the covenant obligations that we, that we had back in Deuteronomy. You do these things according to the covenant, I will bless you. You disobey my covenant, I will send droughts and, and difficulties in your life. And so, anyway, they see it, they recognize it, they turn to God and they repent and they start working on this temple. And for us today, it wouldn't be working on a temple. You and I aren't commanded to go outside here and start um, piling up a bunch of bricks and rocks and actually building a physical temple. But Jesus did leave us with his church with a commission really to just go and to make disciples in all the world, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and teaching them all that Jesus has taught us. That is our temple work here now under this new covenant. It's the way that we come together and worship and it is also uh, this idea of making disciples out there in all of the world in every sphere of life that we live in. So as we think about temple, just be thinking for us new covenant under uh, Jesus' blood kind of covenant, um, that's making disciples. That's just basically what it is. So that's the context of what's going on. They're discouraged. And why are they discouraged in God's work? 
Why are they discouraged? I think, I think we can feel discouraged in God's work as well. They're discouraged in God's work. So we're going to look at this text kind of with that question in mind. So Haggai chapter 2, verse 1. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. So this is about a month after they've started working on this temple now. A month into it. Um, they get to work. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, Jehozad, of Jehozadak, or son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? It's kind of a strange turn in the story, right? You have, one would think after reading the previous chapter of confession or repentance of sin, getting to work on the temple, we would now have a victorious kind of temple building happening. And clearly not, that's not happening. God's coming and saying, this temple looks like nothing, doesn't it? It looks pathetic, doesn't it? There's some kind of discouragement. The highs and the lows of our spiritual journey, ours as well as Israel's, those things can like, those things can happen very close to, to one another, can't they? Like one minute you're thinking, you're quoting Philippians, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me in the next day. Psalm 88 is your, is your text, and you're thinking darkness is my closest friend. And these things can just, the highs and the lows of the spiritual life, can, can, uh, we can experience those things dramatically very quickly, or very close together. And that's what's going on with Israel. There's this, this fantastic... Repentance that's happened, and now clearly there is something wrong, and we see it in the questions. Those of you who saw the house in its former glory, isn't this new one kind of like nothing? Isn't it kind of pathetic? He's talking explicitly to the older generation of Israelites who are there who saw Solomon's house, who saw Solomon's temple, and they remember it as being grand. It's beautiful. There was gold. Everything was layered with gold. Gold all over the place. And they're looking at their little ragtag bunch here in, in torn down Jerusalem and saying, we don't have any gold. How are we, we going to fill this with gold? They had, Solomon had craftsmen who would, who would carve and, and form all kinds of ornate, artistic, beautiful details in Solomon's temple. And they're like, we don't even have money to pay a craftsman. He's got to work on his farm. <laughs> we, don't, we, can't, we can't call him off that to have him come over here and, and work on this temple. There's no money to pay this person. We have no gold. We have no silver. The ark is gone. What are we going to fill this house with? It's just going to be a big, empty, ugly temple with nothing to fill it with. And so they're just understandably discouraged. And they're sacrificing something to work on it. They're likely cutting out of their work a little bit early. They're, they've put their building projects on hold in their homes. They've, they've kind of adjusted their lives to come in and do this work that God has called them to do. And they just don't feel like it's really going to amount to a whole lot. And the risk was that this mentality, the sort of discouragement left unchecked, could start to spread to the rest of, of the workers, the rest of Israel. And discouragement has a way of, of breeding a little bit more discouragement. And, and so God comes in this moment with a very timely word. 
But let's just note for a second that, um, because we don't want to make the wrong assumptions here at this point, God, really throughout chapter 2 here, he's not upset with their discouragement. He is not upset with them. He is not angry. He does not come with a harsh word in this chapter. He enters their world. He just recognizes, you can tell this temple looks kind of pathetic, can't you? I know. I know it looks bad. I know it doesn't look very good, and it looks kind of hopeless. He comes at their level, not a harsh, judgmental word, but an understanding, loving kind of response, entering their world, entering their discouragement. And I think sometimes, I know for myself, I'm not sure about you, but sometimes I can think even my discouragement is God just gets mad at that. Like, God might get upset with me if I'm even discouraged. And it's just, man— rest in knowing, like, God does not automatically uh, get angry just if we get discouraged. I think he just knows, like, our weaknesses. He knows our struggles, and that's, what he's, that's what's going on here. So that's the situation, and I think we can just pause, I, maybe just for a second here, uh, and, and recognize, man, especially those of us, perhaps, I'm, I'm thinking, trying to be consistent with the text here, those of us maybe who have have, uh, have been in, in church world for a while, um, been following Jesus for maybe a considerable amount of time, whatever that number of years would be, and, and you have experienced different churches and different seasons of life where it seems like the work that God's called you to do has been really exciting, really fun. Uh, maybe you were part of a church at some point where there was just growth and the pastor preached the best sermons in the worship team. It was, it was, everything about it was just fantastic. The community life was happening, and, and, and you were involved in it in some way, and you felt like you were being used, and you felt like, like a closeness to God, and you have a way now of all your current experiences kind of run through that filter of like, well, it wasn't that. It, 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 what's, what's going on here is okay, but it wasn't what I had at one time. It, what I had used to be just amazing. And there can be this feeling like my best days are behind me in terms of like of making disciples, of, of working for the Lord. My, desti- my best days, my, they must be behind me. Maybe your kids are out of the house now. And it feels like, yeah, those were my best days. That's when I was really doing the Lord's work. And now I just don't really know anymore. And I think God's word is, oh, I understand I understand what you're feeling. I understand what you're thinking. But let me tell you, that's not like a biblical way of thinking. Like God never actually commends that sort of thought process. Like your best days of doing God's work are over now because of whatever reason. It doesn't matter your age. You can, I remember feeling that way in my 20s sometimes. Like, man, when I was a teenager, I was really doing things for the Lord. And now, whatever, I'm not doing anything. And uh, every age along the way, we can feel this way. We can feel like the best days are behind me. And so let's stop and relate to that. Let's stop and relate to what they're feeling there. Let's put ourselves into the story. I was even thinking about that, like, thinking about discouragement in the Lord's work and making disciples, thinking about it here at CRC. CRC. And um, just thinking, man, there's a lot of people who serve towards the, with the purpose of making disciples in small ways here at CRC. Um, Back in the nursery, you got, you got nursery workers cleaning diapers. My, like, some nursery worker had to clean my little boy's diaper a couple years ago because he was still in diapers. And I think, 
Oh, there's nothing glamorous about that. I don't even like changing my kids' diapers. I don't want to change someone else's diaper, someone else's kids' diapers. It smells worse for some reason. It's just a, it's a, it's just a different kind of experience if it's not your own kid. And they're back there faithfully serving us with our kids. Or the chair you're sitting on. Someone got here early this morning to make sure you had a place to sit. You might not even know who it was, but you, but you appreciate it, right? You, 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 you like, and there's a lot of things that happen at CRC that are, are small, they're minute, and it can feel detached from actual ministry, from actual disciple-making ministry. It can feel like, what role am I really playing here? It seems trivial. It seems like not that big of a deal. And I think God's word is, no, it's huge. Just quoting from Zechariah, which would be the next book over, Haggai and Zechariah were like contemporaries. They, they did a lot of ministry at the same time, so they were speaking to the same context a lot of the time. Zechariah says this. <clears throat> in chapter 4, verse 10, he says, Whoever has despised the day of smaller things will rejoice. In other words, those small things that you're struggling with discouragement on, you will rejoice eventually because they are part of a bigger plan. They actually play a very significant role in, in God's work that he's called us to do. So we, I think you could go on. You could talk about parenting, right? Just parenting kids, feeling like some days there's no, I don't see anything good happening here. <laughs> I'm working so hard to, to try to instill values in them and, and um, bring gospel truth to them. And it just feels like, is it really worth all the effort? Is it worth getting my family in the van on Sunday mornings and coming to the service? Is it worth the effort that I'm putting into getting into a life group or doing this or that or the next thing? Is it really worth it? Or friendships or coworkers or just what, wherever God leads you in your disciple-making we can feel oftentimes discouraged in it and like we don't see progress. We don't see what, what good is coming of it. and We don't see that God is blessing it. But God is not angry at you. God is not displeased with you. In fact, in this text, he seems rather happy. He seems very excited, very positive, very energized by Israel's work on the temple, even though they're wrestling with discouragement. He is very happy with you in your work of making disciples, whether it's really obvious how you're doing it or whether it is changing diapers kind of stuff. He is happy with you. This is, this is, this is very encouraging just to even know, like, that's God's attitude, isn't it? I mean, just, just that that would be his attitude toward us. So, let's continue to read here. How else does God encourage his people in this situation? Well, he assures them of his presence. He just reminds them again, like, I'm with you. And here it is in Haggai 2, 4, and 5. Yet now, be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work. For I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. 
Be strong. He says this three times. And God is not, don't envision God here as like a cheerleader, just cheering on his team. God is not a cheerleader. He is, not sitting, he is never sitting on the sidelines calling you to do a work that he's not also participating in. He's not off on the sidelines doing his own thing and saying, you guys got it. Be strong. Keep going. No, God is more like, uh, he's more like a coach who's, who's in his team's face and he's fully invested in whatever they are trying to accomplish, saying, be strong, be strong, be strong. He's fully engaged in the work himself. He's like a, maybe like a teacher who comes and, and kneels down next to a student saying, you can do this. I know that you can do this. He's not a cheerleader. And it's not like he's struggling with something to say. He's not, he's not thinking, I don't know. What do I say? Be strong, guys. You got it. No, this is, this is the word that they need in that moment. He's trying to arouse in them a passion for the work that he's caused them, called them to do. It's, it, he, he wants them to feel something for it. He wants them to have energy for it. Not that he doesn't understand the discouragement that comes in, but he wants you to feel the passion of, build, of, of building this temple. He wants us to feel some energy about making disciples. Like we actually have a heart for this. We're actually enjoying this work. Be strong in it, is what he's saying. Be strong in that. One thing I learned this week um, that was helpful for me with this passage was that uh, this idea of being strong. Put on your nerdy English hat for a second if you liked English, if you like grammar. Put that on. You'll like this. It's very simple. But the be strong here is written in, in a singular form. And so it's, it's you be strong, and you be strong, and you, every single individual person, be strong. But then when he says work in verse, where is that? Verse 4 there, the end of verse 4, be strong, and work, well, work is written in the plural. In other words, be strong, be strong, be strong, but I'm not calling you to go out and do something on your own. I'm calling all of you together to work toward the same thing. Work together. Be in it together. I don't know if you've noticed that it's football season. Uh, maybe you wish it wasn't football season. <laughs> maybe you're not into it at all. I'm becoming less into it as the Vikings continue to slide here. Um, but one of the things I do enjoy about football season is I love seeing, and I don't, not that you really notice it or think about it, but I think one of the things that draws me into football is the size of the linemen, like the offensive linemen and the defensive linemen. These guys are tanks. They're just, they're just unbelievably huge. They're almost superhuman. And you don't realize it until they're standing next to their coach, you know, or, or the punter comes out on the field, and I'm like, that's more my size right there. And he's probably bigger than me. Um, I just, it's just amazing how big and strong and fast those guys are. They're three times my size, and they could still beat me in a 40-yard dash. It's just, it's just awesome. It's so cool. But what happens if one of those guys says at the end of the year, man, I have worked hard. I'm taking the year off. I'm not going into the weight room. I'm not going to do any conditioning. I am going to eat what I feel like eating, whatever I feel like eating. I'll be back next year to be a part of this team. I mean, obviously he won't have a job, but if he did, that team suffers. The whole team suffers, doesn't it? It's, it's part of a team. Be strong individually, 
But no, you're part of a team, and you're all counting on each other. You're leaning on each other, and you're working towards the same thing. Even though it looks like you're, you're doing different things, you're all working toward the same things. That is, making disciples in this world. If God had stopped there, <laughs> if there was no, nothing left to his encouraging word, um, it would probably be a discouraging word. But thankfully, God did not stop there. We, can, uh, we see in verse 6, or is it, uh, yeah, verse 5, I mean, there is his promise that he is with you in this. My spirit remains in your midst, he says in verse 5. And the importance of this just cannot be overstated. It's something I've been praying for in my own life, praying for for CRC, that God's promise to be with us, that he, he walks with us, his presence is with us, gives us the, the encouragement that we need. If it was left up to, up to us to just be strong, we would eventually fall apart. I mean, we just know that. We've experienced that. But if he is with us, well, God doesn't sign up for, God, God doesn't get involved in things that he's going to fail in. He doesn't promise his presence and then be like, and we'll just see what happens. God just succeeds. He doesn't fail. He never fails. So when he says, I am with you, he's saying, I will accomplish what I want to accomplish through you. I am with you. I will give you the strength that you need to succeed. And success might look a little bit different than maybe what we envision in our minds. I'm not saying we should just insert our own view of success here. But just know, like when God promises his presence, he's saying, and we'll succeed in this, by the way. I make sure success happens. God never, ever, ever, ever fails. So when you hear promises, when you see promises in scriptures that I am with you, he's saying, I, I make success happen. You just be strong. You be faithful to the work. Leave the success up to me. How hopeful, how energizing is that to know that you are not responsible to make sure your children follow Jesus. Not ultimately. You're responsible to work hard at it. But you are not ultimately re responsible to make sure that that happens. That is God's work. God grows his kingdom. He makes the impossible things happen. He just invites us into the work. And to work hard. To labor hard. To be sweating at 8 in the morning. Like, go for it. Work hard at it. Work as a team. But don't place on yourself the pressure that you actually have to, you have to make success happen. You have, all success depends on you and on your shoulders. It is not that way. Take that pressure off. Relieve yourself of that. That is not your responsibility. And so it's very encouraging that God is with us. And he mentions Pharaoh because, why does he mention Pharaoh there? Well, because how does a bunch of, how, how do a bunch of uh, slaves with no power walk out of a kingdom, a very powerful kingdom with a very powerful king with all of his treasure. Back in Exodus. How does that happen? God just makes it happen. He's just reminding them, I can do anything. I, I, I turned you, you, you slaves into a powerful nation. I can do anything I want to do. If my presence is with you, don't worry about it. So what else does God give us here from Haggai? 
when we're discouraged in the work. He, is, he assures his presence, but he also gives us his perspective, and it's helpful to have his perspective at times. What does he say? Look, let's look back in chapter 2, verse 6. Um, chapter 2, 6. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will make all, na- all nations so that the treasures of all nations, nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine. The gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine. The gold is mine. Don't worry about how the temple's going to get filled. I've got it. I'll take care of that. You just build the structure. You work hard. I'm going to fill it with all, because I own all the, men, all the money. I own all the silver. I own all the gold. I can shake a nation, and, and it comes in. And, and it does. God, God's giving them a glimpse of their near future, like what's going to happen with this temple. Um, and, and he does, the, the, the temple gets built in about four years, roughly. And King Artaxerxes, who, is, who, who comes to the throne, recognizes King Cyrus's decree from like two kings ago that, uh, that, that they would actually provide all the money, all the resources for Israel to rebuild its temple, and that they would bring back all the, all the, the, the valuable treasure that was taken out of the original temple, out of Solomon's temple. It will come back. And later on, King Artaxerxes, you can read about it in Ezra um, and Nehemiah, uh, uh, follows through on that promise. And God eventually funds the, uh, the building of the temple through other kingdoms. And, and he fills it with all kinds of beautiful things. And it is very beautiful. And later on, Herod shows up. King Herod, for as, as horrible of a king he was, he made that temple amazing. And you can read about it in Mark, Mark chapter 13. The disciples kind of stop and they're like, look at, the marvel- look at this marvelous temple. They're talking to Jesus. And, and that's, that, that's the history of that particular temple. So it does happen. God does fill it with with treasure. He makes it beautiful, all that stuff. But I think God is really pointing further down the road. When he starts talking Lord of hosts, when he starts saying things like shake the nations, he's saying, man, at the end of time, just know at the very end of it all, the end of this age, when, when, when God's kingdom is finally established permanently and visibly, you're going, to see, you're going to see a temple filled with glory that you've never, you've never imagined in your life. And he, he talks about it in, uh, in Revelation chapter 21, verses 22. I'm just going to throw the words up there. You don't have to turn there if you don't want. But Revelation 21, just so you can see a glimpse of this. <clears throat> um, this is the new Jerusalem. It says, I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need for sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its, light, its lamp is the Lamb. And by its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night. They will bring into, the glory, into it the glory and the honor of the nations. I think God is looking forward to this. 
in Haggai's, in, in Haggai's context, they, they get a glimpse of it. They kind of understand what he's saying. We get more of it in the book of Revelation. God continues to kind of reveal what he means by this temple. It's not even about a structure, Israel. It's not even about a building. It's about God himself. He, he will dwell with his people. You're not going to need a temple anymore. And that's a day that's coming for us too still. And it's good just to, I just think it's so good to remember that, to hang on to that, to know like your disciple-making work, this, 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 this work that God's called us to be, to be busy doing, to working hard for, culminates ultimately into something that is far bigger than anything we could actually accomplish and far more beautiful and glorious than, than anything we, could, we feel like we can even contribute to, and yet we've been called to be a part of it. And invited into that work. And it's, it's inspiring. It's motivating. It's good to know, like, this is a, a grand work that we're a part of. And so keep on with it. Keep working hard. Be diligent in this amazing work. And I think that's what God is just saying here. He's giving us a little bit of his perspective. And we lose it oftentimes in the day-to-day. And we just need that reminder. We just need to know. Yeah, and God's doing something great here. And it's also good. I think it also just reminds me when I look at a text like that, I'm like, yeah, I can't do that. <laughs> I can't do any of that. That sounds like something totally outside of my ability to contribute to. And yep, there again, God's presence makes, will make these things successful. And that is the direction that, that, uh, that he's going. It helps me to think of myself and think maybe of us as individual painters. I'm a horrible painter, unless it's a wall like this. I can do that. Um, but to think of us as painters who have been given a little piece of canvas. And on that canvas, you labor hard and you work. And you try to make that canvas as beautiful as possible. And you got your whole life to work on it. And, whatever it turn, and however it turns out, know that that little piece of canvas that we have painted with is going to get inserted into a much larger mosaic, a much larger picture that we can't see entirely right now, but it belongs there and it makes the, it makes the whole picture far more beautiful. So paint with all your heart. Put everything into it. Know that it's a bigger, more awesome thing than you can see right now. Don't give up. Be strong. So two months later, this all happens pretty fast in Haggai. Two months later, God brings another word to Israel. He says this, On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Ask the priests about the law. Got a theological question. Let's bring in the priests. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? In other words, is holiness transferable? The answer, no. Verse 13, then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these does it be, become unclean? Answer, yes. The priest, answers, the priest answered and said, it does become unclean. And then Haggai said, so it is with these people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands. 
And what they offer there is unclean. What God is doing is he's going back and reminding Israel that at one time they were a disobedient bunch and they started working on this temple. And they, and they, and they, but they started working on the temple now. And he's reminding them that working on the temple is not what makes you clean. Impure people can't go work on something and then that thing becomes pure. You can't guarantee my presence and my blessing just by working really hard at something. By working hard at what I've even called you to work on. What ensures God's blessing and his presence is just faithfulness to his covenant. He's saying you, you, you repent first. That's what ensures, and he goes on to say this. We'll read, read through the rest of this here. But be faithful to the covenant. Come to me on my terms. That's what makes you pure. That's what makes you holy. You can't go make something holy. You can't make this temple holy. You can't ensure my presence just by doing this work and, and expect that I can be kind of manipulated in that way. Verse 15 says, kind of looking back again, he's, he's, think, he's calling to attention sort of their journey, their spiritual journey here. Consider from this day onward, before the stone was placed upon the stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? What was life like when you were living in your disobedience? Well, you came to a heap of 20 measures, and there turned out to only be 10. And when you came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were only 20. I struck you with all the products of your toil, and with blight, and with mildew, and hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. But consider from this day onward, from the 24th day to the ninth month, since the day the foundation of the temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed. The vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree have yielded nothing, but from this day on I will bless you. The language is kind of funny here. It just, it just is, just reading about it. It's weird in Hebrew. It's hard to, to like pull it all out. The, 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 the message, though, isn't all that confusing. And that is purely this. And I've kind of already stated it. It is that you cannot, do not put your hope in the work that you're doing, Israel. You're an impure people. You're an unholy people. You can't, you, can't, you can't make yourself, you can't earn your righteousness in any way. You cannot earn my, uh, my presence with you. You come to me on my terms, which is the covenant. You be faithful to that. You repent when you turn away from the covenant. And then I bless you. And then you get to work. But I, and I bless you in those ways. And this, it seems kind of odd here, but I think what this is really is our gospel reminder because when we've been called to a work, it's amazing how quickly we can turn the work that God's called us to into uh, kind of our God in some way. And we can almost turn the work that God, whether it's temple building or whatever else, we can turn that into like everything and forget about Jesus in the process and just forget that, that, that God first came and rescued our souls, forgave our sin, paid our debts, we can forget who we are and we can forget to even have an affection for God because we're so caught up in the work and our hope almost can start to go into the work. And so we can go on and, and, and be busy with God's work, be busy making disciples, and yet ignoring sin, ignoring all sorts of, like our, the, the, our own self-righteousness, our own pride, 
um, our, our lack of love, our me-first attitude, and think, well, as long as I'm doing God's work, then I guess I'm okay. And God would say, no, no, no. You do not earn, you do not earn your own righteousness by working hard uh, for me. God has earned our righteousness through Jesus Christ. And so the work we do, I think it's just a check. I think he's just checking us and saying, don't, don't, lose, don't lose sight of the fact that God has, uh, he's redeemed you. And he's given you, he's given you a new heart. Don't put your hope in the work. Your hope is still in God. Your hope is in Jesus. In the very end there, of the text, Zerubbabel is mentioned. And uh, it's a very similar text. God talks about overthrowing kingdoms. He talks about overthrowing nations. He talks about um, all these things that are coming. But he mentions Zerubbabel specifically this time. And, what, and he's just saying, he, he mentions Zerubbabel as his signet ring. Meaning, my promise is still on that I've made to you, Israel. Da- the, the, the line of David... Is not, has not come to an end. I'm still going to fulfill that promise. I'm still going to use you, Israel. I'm still going to raise up a king, a Messiah, who uh, will fulfill, who will accomplish all that I've meant Israel to accomplish. And they don't know who that is, but they know if Zerubbabel— because remember, these guys have been in exile for 70 years. It's kind of a mess. Who, like, what government structure do we have? Who's a king? What does this look like? We're in God's land, but we're just, a, we're just a ragtag bunch of people. And God steps in and says, no, I've, I've chosen Zerubbabel to be my signet ring. He will carry on the line of David, meaning the mission is still on, the promise is still on, the Messiah is still coming. It will, it, it will happen. And it's just, it just reminds them, it's an encouraging word to them to know that this is, uh, that God is with them in his mission is still on. And amazingly, you read Matthew 1, you read Luke chapter uh, 3, and Zerubbabel's name shows up in the line of Jesus. And, that, and that's just, that's, that's part of the history, that's part of the story of Israel. God is faithful. God is going to accomplish his work through Israel. So it's a hopeful word, I think, to them. I hope it's a hopeful word. I think it's a hopeful word to us. Um, a way to fight against discouragement. There's nothing greater than, than coming to God's word and just remembering, hey, I'm called to a work, but I've, been, I've been, but I've been adopted as a son, as a daughter of Jesus. And, and so, like, my identity's changed. Everything's different. God has always been faithful to his promises. The work he's called me to do is going to be successful. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to lean on Jesus and, and know that he's, he's sufficient for this. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I, uh, we just thank you that you, um, the work you call us to, God, uh, is not something we're, we're called to uh, guarantee our own success in any way, Lord, but you, uh, you empower us and you walk with us. You, uh, your presence is here uh, with us, God, and it, it will bring about all the... Um, all the things you mean to accomplish, Lord. So please help us, God, in your grace to, to be willing to work hard at the tasks that you've called us to do 
And God, just, I just really appreciate the warning in your word here, Lord, to not turn the mission into the object of our affection. You are the object of our affection, God. You have accomplished everything already through Jesus. You've already purchased us. You've already made us clean. Our identities are absolutely secured. The invitation to work is an honorable one, Lord. It's one that we pursue, hopefully with joy, hopefully with gladness of heart, knowing that, that you, are, you are with us in it. So we thank you for your word. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.